This morning's Bible reading is from Luke 7. Um, we're reading from verses 36 to 50. Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began <clears throat> to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When that Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them would love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, said Jesus. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I had entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as a great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thank you. Thanks for reading that for us, Rian. Uh, my name is Steve, and I have the wonderful privilege of opening uh, this passage for us today. Uh, but before I begin, how about I pray and ask for God's help? Father God, please speak to us today through your word. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last summer, uh, my wife and I took the kids uh, to Aussie World uh, on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, it's basically the, the cheaper, sort of more toned-down alternative to Dreamworld or Movie World, uh, targeted more at kids our age. Well, when I say our age, my kids' age. It was a bit of fun for me too, though. But not all the rides uh, at Aussie World were meek and mild enough for my children's sensibilities. And one of these rides uh, was called the Plunge, uh, which was basically a little whitewater log ride. Now, it took a bit of convincing uh, to get my son, Jesse, in the line for this ride. Uh, he's quite risk-averse at the best of times. And this was going to be his first experience of that real free-fall feeling in the gut. So I was pretty determined uh, to get him on and feel what that was like. Now, he eventually came to, uh, when he looked at the ride, he made all of his assessments, and he realized that it was a simple up and down and the ride was done. He saw others going on it and thought, okay, this might be all right. 
What he didn't realise, though, is that this ride actually had two plungers, not just one, and that the second one was significantly steeper than the first. He hadn't seen the whole picture of what this ride entailed, and this led him to two minutes of begging and screaming to get off the ride after the first plunge. But, unfortunately, the show had to go on. There was no stopping the inevitable, and he had to come to grips with the rest of its terrifying glory. Now, by the end of the ride, uh, having been through this whole experience, uh, what he would probably consider a near-death experience, he was so overcome with emotion uh, that he was so thankful to be on dry ground that he, he jumped off the ride and ran into Mum's arms and clung to her for about an hour afterwards. Now, in Luke's Gospel today, uh, we come across a man who, like Jesse, had significantly underestimated something. He'd underestimated the depths of his own sin. A man who doesn't get just how terrifying it is and how deep it really goes. And this leads him to all kinds of scandalously inhospitable acts towards Jesus and an underappreciation of who he really is. We also come across a woman, though, who has endured this ride to the end, who's understood the depths of her sin and seen full forgiveness in the Saviour. In fact, this led her, like Jesse throwing himself onto mum, this led her to cling to her safety, the Lord and Saviour Jesus, and to show great acts of love and appreciation for what he has done for her. So we're going to start at point one on the outlines, uh, the scandal part one, uh, the scandal of Simon's hospitality. So the passage begins, uh, and again here in Luke, uh, Jesus finds himself at yet another meal. Uh, many of his encounters in Luke all uh, find themselves in the context of a meal. Uh, the last time I preached, in fact, he was partying with Levi, the tax collector. But now he finds himself at the house of a Pharisee named Simon. But to truly understand what's going on in the passage today, uh, and probably more importantly what isn't going on, uh, we need a little bit of context around these types of meals in the first century. So to start with invited guests, uh, they wouldn't sit at standard dining tables and slide in their chairs like we do. They didn't have the, the television on in the corner. Uh, rather, they would lounge uh, propped up uh, on the ground, usually with a, a pillow or some kind of um, flat stool with a central table and all the food in the middle of it, like you see on the screen here. And generally speaking, they would lay on their left side with their right hand free uh, to pick the food. Their feet, probably most importantly, uh, would be at the farthest point of the table. And this is partly because feet were considered the dirtiest part of the body. So naturally, you'd have them at the furthest distance from the food. Now, these feasts, uh, they were generally open to uh, spectators as well. Uh, some of these rooms that people would feast in didn't even have rooms, or they'd be open with no doors to the public to look in and see what was going on. Part of this was so that the neighbours could get jealous and see how rich and amazing you were and how generous you were to your slaves or the party guests and so on. But the point is you didn't have to be invited or welcomed in any way uh, to see and experience some of these events, to, to look in. Now, one of the benefits of this is because there wasn't TV in those days and so the best entertainment was vicariously kind of participating in these feasts, uh, hearing what these people would talk about. Uh, seeing them debate and sometimes even get into fiery arguments on occasion. 
There was enjoyment uh, at being part of the crowds watching in on these events. And so when we understand this, uh, it'll help us understand a lot of what's going on in the passage today. Uh, Particularly, it'll probably help us understand the presence of this sinful woman and how she was able to get so close to Jesus as she did and to be able to do what she did to Jesus. But before we get to her, uh, we're going to take a quick look at exactly how Simon treats his invited guest, Jesus. We know by this point in Luke, uh, to say the least, that Jesus had already garnered quite a reputation for himself, uh, particularly among the Pharisees. Uh, We know in verse 34, which is just before the passage we've read, that Jesus was known as a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So the very fact that Simon invites Jesus, who has this kind of reputation, right, someone who hangs out with the scum of society, that the fact that Simon invites him as a guest to his house should be enough to raise some eyebrows a little bit about his motivation here. But uh, we're told never to judge a book by its cover. So what I want to do is step back and let the facts about Simon speak for themselves in this instance. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, look with me at verses 44 to 46. We're going to skip over what the woman does in these passages. We'll come back to that in a moment. But but we're going to take a quick look at what Simon does. So Jesus says, I came into your house... You did not give me any water for my feet. You did not give me a kiss. And you did not put oil on my head. Now, in the first century among Jews, it was pretty standard practice to greet uh, invited guests with a little peck on each cheek. Um, You even find that in some cultures today. It's a sign of fidelity and respect, especially to invited guests. Uh, Again, occasionally, if you had a guest of honour at the party, like the the kind of central focus of your party, uh, which Jesus probably was in this instance, then they would be anointed with olive oil as well as another sign of respect uh, and dignity for this person. In many ways, these are are just standard courtesies that Simon had overlooked uh, in inviting Jesus over. But I want to dive into the first accusation in slightly more detail because this is where a lot of the action happens. Uh, regarding this sinful woman. So the first thing that happens, Jesus says, I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet. Now, when coming into a house uh, in the first century, particularly for a meal, uh, it was absolutely standard practice to offer water, uh, a bowl usually with water, and a towel to the invited guests to wash their feet. But more than this, feet were considered so filthy in the first century that it was often something, cleaning them was often something that the household slaves would do. And this too would even be too demeaning for some Jewish slaves or some households, that that certain households wouldn't even let their Jewish slaves do it. The Gentile, the the non-Jews would be the ones to perform this task. Now, washing of the feet, it was important uh, because it involved, and I quote uh, from a book that I read earlier, involved the washing off human and animal waste. And it goes on to say that human waste was emptied out of windows into city streets each morning, while animal waste was ever present. So foot washing was absolutely necessary because the streets were so filthy. They didn't have underground sewerage and water treatment systems that we have today, so 
uh, sewerage and, and, and disgusting things like excrement and so on, they were just around. They were just everywhere. It was part of life. And if you travelled from anywhere to anywhere on foot, then you were generally exposed to this stuff. Um, even today, in, in the Australian country, if you've ever done hikes or any of those orienteering trails through uh, country towns with, with cows everywhere, um, you might be diligent enough to avoid all the cow patties that you see on the trail, but uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I've done this, I almost inevitably end up stepping in at least one before the end of the day. Right? It's not much different uh, in the first century, except they didn't have those enclosed leather hiking boots that we would have had. But more than this, if, if you're going to somewhere to eat in the first century, the last thing that you want is dirty feet coming into the house and going anywhere near the food. So naturally, you'd have them washed on your way in. And this, as I said, is just a basic courtesy. But Simon denies this to Jesus. We're not told in the text why, but it might be safe to assume that being a good law-abiding Pharisee that he most likely didn't forget to do this to the others at the table, but that is speculation, we're not told. Not giving Jesus a greeting kiss, though, and not giving him oil for his head either, well, it doesn't really look so great for Simon the Pharisee anymore. Right? If this was an Airbnb, his rating wouldn't be too great, at least from Jesus' review. He's fallen short in so many areas of basic hospitality, and his treatment of Jesus, uh, when we add up all of these little instances, is basically scandalous. And yet the deeper scandal, I want to argue, is Simon's view of his own sin. You see, if we zoom out a little bit, if, if we remember that Simon is a Pharisee, right, well, then we'll know he's one of the more pious and religious men of this day. Right? He's, from, he's from the upper echelons of Jewish society. He's not a sinner by any of his own metrics. And, and in fact, he would probably argue that he is righteous. He obeys God's law. He reads his Torah. He's not like the so-called prophet here, Jesus, who allegedly drinks himself silly, and someone who hangs with sinners and tax collectors. Nor, especially, does he think he is like this sinful woman that we see in the passage today. So with this, let's turn our attention to the so-called uh, sinful woman in the story as we begin point two. The scandal part two, the sinful woman. So we've covered the, the terrible hospitality of Simon. We've seen that. I think naturally, if we understand uh, this woman through the lens of Simon, we should probably want to turn to this woman in, in the story and think, well, she's going to be far worse. Why? Because, I mean, she's introduced, if you look, as, as a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. That's her reputation. It goes before her. Everyone knows this about her. Now, we're not told what she did, uh, what kind of sins she committed or what life she had that caused this reputation. Uh, many assume she was a prophet. Uh, sorry, not a prophet, a prostitute. Uh, Jesus is the prophet in this instance. They assume she was a, a prostitute, uh, and they associate many of the things that she did uh, in this uh, passage with her trade as a prostitute. But I want to say that, that I'm not so convinced. Uh, you see, the text doesn't tell us that she's a prostitute. Uh, it's one of those details that Luke may well have included if it was true. But on top of this, all of her acts, right, the boldness of her emotion, uh, her behavior in this text, the social cost of letting her hair down in public, 
uh, approaching a Pharisee's table, washing the dirt and grime off Jesus' feet, the cost of breaking open an expensive alabaster jar of perfume, the length she was willing to go, all of this can, can be explained through the lens of seeing her for what she truly is, as a forgiven sinner. So I don't want to jump to conclusions too early about what she did. More than this, though, if you've read your Bible quite uh, a lot, you'd be familiar with the other Gospels as well that have very similar stories of of women pouring perfume on Jesus' head and and people arguing about how expensive that is and it could have been sold for other money and so on. I want to say it may not be the same story as that either because a lot of the key details and issues here are very different from that story. She's not the Mary from John 12 uh, who fits that story. But nor is she, I want to argue, nor the Mary Magdalene that we see in the very next chapter. Just a few verses down, if you read chapter 8, 1 to 3, there's a few women in there. And you read of Mary, who had demons cast out of her. And I want to argue it's not her either. Because none of these have enough biblical evidence yet to support this claim. So the reason I'm saying this is because I want to, I want to avoid us bringing in what we know uh, of the Bible into the passage too early on and to make uh, conclusions uh, too quickly. I want to let the text speak for itself here. The woman is simply identified as a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. The things we do know about her, though, is that this sinful woman does far more for Jesus than Simon did. And yet, according to Simon, she's effectively like a contagious disease. We see this in the way he mutters to himself, if, if this man, if this man Jesus were a prophet, he would know the woman that is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. She is basically the scum of society to him and all of his mates sitting around that table. And more than likely, others who were watching in, the spectators on the outside, probably thought this too. Because this woman, you see, she had this reputation The fact that she is a woman in that town who lived a sinful life tells us that everyone knew. She was known by the locals as a sinner, and this is generally why people assume she was a town prostitute. But despite this reputation, what she does for Jesus, the love she shows him, demonstrates that she has had her many sins forgiven, as Jesus says in verse 47. I think the best way uh, to grasp the contrast here between Simon uh, and this forgiven sinner is to go through and highlight what each of them does for Jesus. You see, on the one hand, we have Simon, and in verse 36, he invites Jesus in. And the other verbs are things that he didn't do that we encountered earlier. So he didn't give Jesus any water to wash his feet. He didn't give Jesus a greeting kiss. He didn't anoint Jesus with oil as he normally should have normally done for the guest of honour. So the extent of Simon's actions are inviting Jesus and then not doing a whole bunch of stuff that he should have done. The forgiven sinner, on the other hand, this woman, well, we're told that she learned where Jesus was. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind him, weeping. She wet his feet With her tears, she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and she poured, or or a better word would be anointed them, with perfume. 
And just having a look at these two lists on screen, you can see that she did so much more by way of hospitality and treating Jesus as the guest of honour than Simon did. She treated Jesus with the honour and dignity and respect that he deserves. But Simon, on the other hand, he, he appears so blind to his own hospitality shortcomings because he doesn't seem to care about what he's done. All he sees is a so-called sinful woman approaching the banquet in a manner that is completely out of line with his Pharisaic sensibilities. All he sees is Jesus, an alleged prophet, who should have shooed her away in disgrace and condemned her act on the spot. But Jesus doesn't do any of these things. In fact, he turns his attention to Simon, and by name he gives him this parable uh, in the form of a riddle. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you, in verse 40 onwards. Tell me, teacher, Simon responds. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more, Jesus said. Now, to put this story in a bit of context, uh, one denarii is about a day's wages, right? So, so one of them owed the moneylender just under two months' worth of debt, while the other more than a year working full-time. So Simon considered the parable, and uh, as a good Pharisee of high repute and to show how clever he is, he willingly answers this question. He says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus says to him. Simon understands the basic principle of the parable. Right? It's pretty obvious that the larger the debt, the greater the love. Make sense? I mean, if I had a debt for $6,000 for a car loan that I couldn't pay back, and, and if the person that, that gave me the loan said, look, your debt is forgiven, you know, I, don't worry about it, you're scot-free, I would no doubt thank the creditor. I would tell all of my friends and family. But if I owed something in the ballpark of, of $80,000 thereabouts, then I would be jumping out of my skin with joy. If, if they turned around and said, you know what, don't worry about it. <laughs> I can see you can't pay it. I can see you've got all these other things going on. Your $80,000 debt is wiped. Go in peace. Well, I can only imagine every news outlet would want a piece of the story. It would probably make the front page of all the local newspapers, and it would be a story that I would probably tell for the rest of my life. And this explanation becomes Jesus' justification for the actions of the sinful woman, explaining why she's doing what she does. And this brings us to our last point, uh, the scandal explained, understanding our own sinfulness. So after Simon answers Jesus correctly, uh, Jesus proceeds to explain what's going on uh, with this woman at the feast. We've already been through her response of thankfulness, right? We've covered the things that she does and the lengths she goes to in order to love Jesus. But it's worth for a moment looking at what is probably the most critical verse for the whole passage, uh, verse 47. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. 
Now, I know on occasion uh, here at KPC we comment on the NIV, right? We tell you, well, you know, this verse is probably better translated as this and so on. But here in verse 47, the NIV's translation actually captures this idea perfectly. We read, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. If you're reading more of a a literal translation, uh, QTC, we like the the English Standard Version, the ESV, uh, you might see something like this in your Bible. It says, For she loved us, she loved much, because she loved much. So she was... She had, had, sorry, she had her many sins forgiven because she loved much or for she loved much, something to that effect. The reason I raise this point is because if we translate the passage like these more literal translations do, it looks as though Jesus is saying that her sins are forgiven because of the great love she has shown. Right? Her, her works of loving Jesus are what have caused her forgiveness. But this flies directly in the face of what we know to be true uh, from the rest of Scripture, that we're saved by grace alone, not by our works. So I think the NIV actually does a great job here by highlighting that this is in fact a response to Jesus' grace and forgiveness to her. And in case uh, you're sitting there and you're more of a literalist and you like the translation you've got, uh, I want to argue that the rest of the passage actually supports this too. So firstly, the phrase, uh, her many sins have been forgiven. Uh, There's a very special tense used uh, in this idea of have been. The point Jesus is making is that she's currently in a state of forgiveness from something that has happened in the past, something that has already happened prior to this point, not because of anything she's doing right now. The second is because this is exactly how the parable works that Jesus just told. Right? The one that loved more in the parable is the one that had the larger debt forgiven. His debts weren't forgiven because he loved his creditors. That would be bonkers, absolutely insane. And, and dare I say, we'd probably be in a different position as a denomination if that were the case. You know, if all it took was an act of love like in all the Disney movies and, and our debts were wiped and... You know, never mind. <laughs> that's, that's a big sidetrack. The point is that forgiveness comes first, right? The the woman shows her love towards Jesus as a result of her forgiveness. It's not the cause of it. Now, the woman is the one who's forgiven much in the parable. Jesus explains that. And if that's the case, then one might think that Simon, on the other hand, must be the one who loves little because he's been forgiven little. Again, though, we need to be careful as we deal with the text because while for rhetorical reasons it wraps the whole parable into a nice, neat little package, you know, to have the sinful woman with the larger debt and Simon with the smaller, uh, we're not actually told that this is the case. In fact, we're not told that Simon has been forgiven at all in this passage. The verdict is left open for him. And I think to some extent that's actually a really good thing because that will help us to stop and think about ourselves for a moment. You see, I think the reason Jesus uses the woman as the example of the one with the larger debt is not because Simon's the one with the smaller, but rather is to see if Simon realises his own enormous debt to the true judge of his soul. 
In fact, I don't think anyone is supposed to place themselves in the category of the one with the smaller debt. And this is probably why I think Jesus points out all of Simon's hospitality shortcomings in 44 to 46. You see, he might think he's the one with the smaller debt, or even no debt at all, being a righteous Pharisee. But in reality, he's just as much in need of forgiveness as this sinful woman was. There's no real distinction between them when it comes to their account before their maker. But Simon seems to be completely blind to the depths of his own sin. And I think, interestingly enough, Luke points this out to us in a very cheeky way in this passage. He hints at Simon's own blindness to his sin when he asks, do you see this woman? Now, the answer is obviously yes. He can see her with his eyes physically. But I think the point being made here is that he doesn't really see her at all. He sees her as nothing, right? She's just a drain on society, as someone completely unworthy to be recognized or noticed in any other circumstance. Now, he doesn't really see her at all. And I think Luke is very clever in the way he does this because he's kind of saying that that Simon doesn't really see sin. He doesn't really see his own sin. Yet, dare I say, the verdict is still out on Simon. See, Luke doesn't record uh, for us what happens to him. And I think this is because the story is designed to help us to reflect on where we are in the parable. You're meant to reflect and consider in your heart who you are in this story. Are you the sinful woman? Do you know the depths of your own sin and by extension the heights of the forgiveness that has been earned for you through Jesus' death and resurrection? Do you love Jesus with a gratitude springing from the depths of your heart and soul because you know the fiery depths from which you have been saved? A judgment which you wholly deserve for rejecting him as your loving creator and instead installing self, yourself as king over your life. Or on the other hand, do, do we act more like Simon? Do we not recognize the depths and the severity of our own sin? Do you act in a kind of tit-for-tat way with God, you know, doing your part in your prayer and devotions and reading as if somehow your, your holiness meter is filling up through these acts and how, that God would kind of be pleased with, with some of your efforts here and, and he would accept you on your own righteousness in, in place of his sons? Do you really understand how much you need forgiveness? It's a very important topic for the life and health of any Christian because the reason that we harp on and on and on week in, week out about the death and resurrection of Jesus at church is because we are hopeless, utterly hopeless at remembering our own need for him in our lives. Every day we march on as if we can do everything under our own strength. If you don't understand how how much you desperately need Christ's forgiveness, then be careful that you don't become like Simon in your Christian walk. You know, giving Jesus kind of a half-hearted welcome into your house and looking down upon those around you as if you're thankful you're not as bad as them or you've got your life far more together than all these other people around you. 
this kind of pride, it's toxic to the Christian faith. And this pride is why Simon couldn't see the depths of his own sin. I mean, after all, in his own mind, he's a pretty good guy. In fact, he's a great guy. He's a Pharisee. And by comparison to the woman in the passage, he was practically a saint, I think, in his own mind, ready to be caught up, swept into heaven by his own piety. But the problem is that this is how all other religions work. You go to any other religion on the face of the planet, and this is how it goes. You know, you, you do your good things, and God sort of repays you for that, and you get swept up into heaven because you're such a great guy or girl or whatever. So be careful if you see the seeds of this attitude in your hearts, that, that you think somehow you're earning merit with God on the basis of your good works, and ask God to help you repent of that attitude and to lay your life in his hands for the safeguarding of your soul. If to the contrary you know how much you need God's forgiveness, then like this woman, I think the, the logical question is, are you willing to throw yourself upon Jesus like she does in trust and full assurance? She doesn't hold anything back as she does this. That alabaster jar of perfume would have been ridiculously expensive. And she does all this even when it's awkward and when these actions are likely to be misunderstood by everyone around her. Are we willing to throw ourselves upon Jesus like that in our day-to-day lives? Because at the end of the day, the more intimately you know the depths of your sin and your need for forgiveness, the more you will understand the cost of Christ's death and resurrection for the sins of the world. And yet contrary to what it might look like, uh, and contrary, believe it or not, to what some churches even teach, the deeper you understand the problem of sin in your life, the more unworthy you know that you are to approach God. And the more unworthy you know you are to approach God, the clearer it becomes that God went to unfathomable lengths to approach you instead and to reach out to this world in the form of Jesus to save you by enduring the penalty that your sin deserved on the cross. So do we really understand the depths of our sin? Do you really understand the depth of your sin? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Luke. Lord, we thank you that we see in Simon and the sinful woman, Lord, people that both desperately need your forgiveness. Father, I pray that you would help reveal in our lives areas that we need to repent of, areas of pride where we think we are better than others, areas of of self-pity where we think we are not worth enough. And help us, Lord, to throw ourselves onto Jesus for the safeguarding of our soul until the day of judgment. And this we pray in his wonderful name. Amen.